Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases. Today I'm joined by Associate Professor Nawaf Yassi, who works at the Royal Melbourne Hospital and is a stroke neurologist. Hi Nawaf, thanks for joining us today to talk about intracerebral hemorrhage. Thanks John. Thanks for having me. I thought a good way to do this would be to discuss three patients, all of whom presented to the stroke unit with strokes due to intracerebral hemorrhage and discuss their investigation and management to cover a lot of the important topics surrounding this presentation. Listeners that want to be able to look at the images can go to our website at neuropodcases.co.uk where you can download the supplementary case notes where these images are available. Um, So to begin with, we have a 71-year-old male who's um, he has a background history of hypertension, and he was last known to be well two hours prior to pre- presentation. And he presents with sudden onset of right-sided weakness affecting the face, arm, and leg. His initial examination demonstrates a blood pressure of 220 systolic over 100 diastolic. His GCS is 15, but he does have dense weakness down the right-hand side with no dysphasia. Um, you can see there the CT scan of his head. Are you able just to describe what it is that you can see on that scan to us? Yeah, so I can see that the um, that there is an intracerebral hemorrhage um, originating in the left uh, thalamic area, so um, thalamic slash uh, internal capsule area, um, and it uh, there is extension into the intraventricular space as well, um, particularly in the left uh, lateral ventricle, but also going into the right. It's hard to hard to see on those select slices whether there's also um, some some uh, early hydrocephalus. Sometimes scrolling right down to the temporal horns is the best is the best place to start looking for early hydrocephalus. But um, yeah, a, a left um, thalamic intracerebral hemorrhage. Okay, and in terms of the initial management for this patient, what are your priorities? Yeah, so I mean, as as um, as you all know, there's. Uh, Unfortunately, a, a bit of a dearth of, uh, of you know, s- strong evidence-based management approaches for intracerebral hemorrhage. Uh, you know, I think the, the sort of general concepts about airway stabilization and, and early um, hemodynamic stabilization apply um, regardless. Probably the, the, um, the best target to, to go for with this particular patient is the um, significant hypertension. Mm-hmm. So we do know... Uh, and we can talk a little bit about the evidence around early blood pressure management, but uh, what I would suggest is that we manage this uh, patient's blood pressure uh, uh, early and, and, and reasonably aggressively to a target of, of 140 systolic. He's uh, sitting at 220 at the moment. Uh, I think apart from that, the standard uh, approach of, um, you know, nil by mouth and, uh, you know, early admission to a stroke unit is um, is really important. You know, we, we we often forget that stroke unit care is, you know, a strong evidence based therapy for stroke, both ischemic and intracerebral hemorrhage. And particularly within the uh, intracerebral hemorrhage group, there is good evidence that stroke unit care improves survival and and functional outcome. Okay. Um, We'll, uh, we'll come back to the blood pressure in just a second, as you said, um, to, to discuss some of the evidence behind. Mm. Uh, treating that blood pressure. Are there any other, is there any role for any other uh, treatments at the moment? I'm thinking in particular hemostatic agents. 
Yeah, so the hemostatic agent uh, question is an important one and obviously a huge amount of, um, of, of interest around this in the, in the research space. I think it's fair to say that uh, it certainly wouldn't be my recommendation to use tranexamic acid or other hemostatic agents outside of a, of a clinical trial at the moment. And obviously the exception is for, um, you know, specific reversal of uh, a, an anticoagulant associated hemorrhage. But I think, uh, you know, assuming that this patient is not on anticoagulants, I think uh, any use of tranexamic acid or Novo7 or other hemostatic uh, strategies would be really uh, off label. And I, I, I would suggest should be, should be um, restricted to clinical trial settings. Okay. Um, would you do a, a CT angiogram in every patient presenting with a bleed? And, and what added value can it give you in cases like this? Yeah, so I, it is our approach to, to do a, a CT angiogram in every patient. Um, uh, and and we, do, we do find it very helpful. In looking at this non-con, it, it, it is really uh, based on the location and the uh, age of the patient. It's very likely that this is a hypertensive hemorrhage. Uh, but 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 you know, very occasionally you are surprised to find a, an unusual vascular malformation, or uh, or or a, you know an alternative um, you know non-vascular cause for the for the hemorrhage once you do the the CT angiogram. The other um, uh, things that you the, that you can sometimes see is a is a CTA spot sign, which is a sign of ongoing contrast extravasation, mm -hmm. and it is a a uh, predictor of ongoing uh, um, hemorrhage and, and hematoma expansion, which is associated with, with poor prognosis. So that they may be patients that you keep a, a much closer eye on or, or you know, consider, you know, referring to the surgeons, um, you know, for, for a consideration of, of monitoring at least. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the, other, the other thing with, the, with CT angiograms is, um, uh, you, you know, Again, not necessarily the case in, in this patient, but if, if there is an arteriovenous malformation or an aneurysm or other sort of vascular cause of bleeding, the interventionalists um, really uh, uh, you know, benefit from the CT angiogram in terms of planning potential procedures or you know, diagnostic or therapeutic procedures. Okay. You touched on it there briefly, but I think a lot of confusion can sometimes arise as to when and which patients warrant referral to neurosurgery. Um, would you refer this patient at this stage? Is this someone they need to be aware of or, or how would you manage this? Yeah, I think the, the, the role of surgery is, um, is, is challenging in intracerebral hemorrhage. And there is a, uh, a huge amount of variability around the world as to, as you said, who looks after the patient and also um, what the threshold is for surgical um, intervention. And I think that, that uh, you know, discrepancy around different centres and different countries around the world probably, you know, reflects the, uh, the lack of very clear, you know, uh, evidence for, you know, who, who benefits from surgery, what surgical approach is the best and you know, when, when surgery should be done, if it should be done. So, you know, I, I think for this particular patient, um, as you say, we, we look after primary ICH under the stroke team here in Melbourne. And um, this wouldn't be someone that I would expect uh, would be referred. Um, so, um, you know, I think when, when thinking about surgery for ICH, there's there's a couple of different approaches. Um, uh, you know, I mean, you, you, you need to ask yourself, are you targeting the primary 
hematoma? Are you trying to evacuate hematoma and, you know, perhaps reduce some of the direct tissue damage or edema around the hematoma? Or are you trying to prevent a secondary complication, particularly looking at this scan, hydro hydrocephalus? And the approaches there are quite different. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, targeting such a deep hematoma traditionally is not seen to be a very useful uh, approach because at least with, with standard traditional, you know, craniotomy approaches, you know, that, that's not usually the, the outcome is not, is not great. Could this patient, you know, deteriorate and uh, develop hydros worsening hydrocephalus and require an EBD? I think it's possible, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't proceed with an EBD unless they, you know, deteriorated. So I, I would watch them. Yep. And then um, back to the, the blood pressure question. So you said you would treat mm. the blood pressure and you'd try and aim to bring that down to 140 over 90. I'm just interested to know two things really. First of all, what would you use to bring the blood pressure down? And, and secondly, what's the evidence base behind that? And are there any controversies? Um, yeah, there's always controversies in ICH. So um, uh, I, we, we locally um, have in the last year or two switched to using nacardipine. Uh, so intravenous nicardipine, which can be given as an infusion. And nicardipine is a, is a um, calcium antagonist. And um, the benefit is that it can be given intravenously and also um, it can be titrated very closely to, to the blood pressure. And, and um, uh, the, the nurses really um, report being able to get a very rapid and tight control of the blood pressure, which is, which is really um, what you want. Prior, prior to that, we were using hydralazine, which often requires a lot of boluses and uh, and you can have quite a lot of fl fluctuation of the blood pressure. We have in the past also used um, libitolol. In terms of, um, uh, I know in the UK, um, uh, um, GTN is often used, so topical GTN, and we can talk about, uh, you know, the, the evidence um, for and against that. Um, in terms of the overall evidence for blood pressure they're lowering, there is controversy, as you say. I guess the, um, the most important trial that we use to guide our, um, our target of 140 uh, millimetres of mercury systolic is the INTERACT-2 trial, uh, which, which really targeted that sort of uh, that target of blood pressure within six hours of stroke onset. Uh, investigators were allowed to use whichever antihypertensive agent they, they wanted to in that particular trial and most of the patients were recruited in in China and um, the, the commonest agent used there was urapidil which is a, a type of alpha antagonist which we actually don't don't use in Australia but th there was a sort of wide uh, variety of other agents used mm. and although that trial missed the primary endpoint on dichotomized modified Rankin it was positive on shift analysis and and there were also some very uh, you know, consistent trends on a number of other secondary um, uh, outcomes. And, and importantly, lowering the blood pressure to that target of 140 millimetres systolic appeared to be safe. Mm -hmm. So there weren't uh, any increased uh, renal um, side effects, for example, or, or significant hypotensive episodes. Um, the other important trial is the ATTACH-2 trial, which was an American trial where nacardipine was used and that uh, that that targeted a much uh, a much more aggressive target, and so the um, the control group in it, if you if you if you sort of line up the two trials side by side, the control group of attached to really looked like the intervention group of of the Interact two trial, 
Mm. Um, and attached to was also negative, but, um, but, but did show an increase in renal side effects. So, so what we would generally do is, is target 140, but not, but not uh, go more aggressively than that. And um, generally it's using nicardipine, uh, sometimes hydralazine, um, uh, and, and we try to do to, to manage people on the ward uh, is the other is the other issue. So we haven't generally uh, pushed to get people into the intensive care unit primarily for blood pressure management, and that's probably just because of you know that 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 strength of evidence and the, the size of the effect. I guess from a clinical point of view, is not likely to uh, be strong enough to warrant admission to to, to the intensive care unit. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Um, moving on with this case. So eight hours later, the patient is on the ward and blood pressure has been lowered using the cardipine. Uh, and the patient starts to report worsening headache and develops double vision. And on examination, he become, he's noted to be drowsy, but he's responsive to voice. And he's developed a sixth nerve palsy and a repeat CT scan is performed, uh, which you can see there. Are you able just to talk through what, what you think has happened here and uh, what would be your next steps in terms of management? Yeah, so there's clearly um, worsening hydrocephalus here. And, and as I said before, the, um, the best place to look for at least early hydrocephalus is in, the temporal, is in the temporal horns. And you can see right at the bottom slice here that the temporal horns are expanded. Uh, temporal horns really should look uh, very much slit-like and almost invisible at that slice, but you can see that they're quite clearly expanded. Mm -hmm. The, the uh, lateral ventricles are also expanded on the other on the other slices there, and I suspect the cause of the deterioration here is is hydrocephalus, which is making the patient drowsy and probably causing a uh, the, the so-called uh, false localizing sixth nerve palsy. Okay, obviously with, with the uh, with this finding, uh, what are the discussions that you would be having at this stage with the with the patient or the patient's family? Yeah, so I think. Um, I think this is where this question of should we do an EVD uh, is one that's worth having. And, um, you know, I think, um, I think the challenge here is, uh, is trying to really contextualize that discussion within, uh, you know, the, you know, the framework of this particular patient uh, and what, what their, what their pre-morbid function is like. You said that their pre-morbid function is, is very good. And so that's a, that's a good thing that would, um, you know, be an argument that we should be, uh, you know, more aggressive, but also what their, uh, you know, pre-existing, you know, wishes uh, or, 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 um, or opinion uh, is about, about, you know, potentially living with disability. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, unfortunately, with a deep hemorrhage like this and with involvement of the internal capsule, there is likely to be a significant amount of disability, um, uh, you know, on, ongoing. Mm -hmm. um, I think I think one of the things that 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 gets us sometimes into trouble with ICH is this sort of concept of therapeutic nihilism. However, so uh, you know we don't really know what the outcome is going to be unless we give this patient you know a good period of rehabilitation. So I, I wouldn't be too negative, and yeah. I think if the family understand that the patient um, is going to be left with with some level of disability, but that we would commit to a period of rehabilitation and see how things go. I think it would be reasonable to talk about a, an EVD in this case. Yeah. I guess if the, if the patient had, has always stated that they would never, you know, want to want to live with any li level of disability or wouldn't want to have 
uh, aggressive interventions and, and those kind of things, and that would be a different question. Okay. We'll just finish up with, on this case now. You, you did mention that there isn't a clear consensus on how best to manage um, ICH surgically, and, and you've got the different approaches, which is obviously managing the complications versus clot, um, sorry, hematoma evacuation. Um, is, are there any sort of trials in the pipeline uh, that trainees might be interested to, to hear about? Yeah, so the idea of um, minimally invasive surgery is, um, is really g gaining a lot of traction and uh, trainees may, have, may be aware of the MISTI-3 trial, for example, which um, was published a couple of years ago, which was a neutral trial, but there are, there are now um, novel techniques that are being described where there is um, direct visualization of the hematoma through an endoscope and you know, real-time uh, visualization and cauterization and evacuation of the hematoma with a minimally invasive approach. And that is really uh, uh, quite exciting um, as opposed to the previous, uh, I guess, minimally invasive approaches, which were quite labor intensive and, and took a lot of time to, you know, establish stability and, and uh, um, you know, uh, perhaps these these tech, newer techniques may be more effective and, and, and even potentially safer. So we're running a trial called the Evacuate trial here in, in, uh, in Australia, uh, looking at this uh, minimally invasive technique. I think, um, I think the future, you know, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, hemostatic therapy in, you know, earlier. I think what, what, what would be a, a good therapeutic approach in the future is a combination of hemostatic therapy and, and, um, and, and surgical therapy. And so, you know, we're obviously very interested in tranexamic acid and, and are running a, a, a trial within two hours of, of, of stroke onset of tranexamic acid versus placebo to follow up on our recently published STOP-OS trial. And a number of groups are also interested in Novo7 um, in, within the same uh, sort of time frame, the ultra early time frame. So it might be that it's a combination of, of uh, hemostatic therapy and minimally invasive therapy that, that would be the answer. Great. Um, so moving on, um, so now case two. Um, so this is a 73-year-old male. Again, excellent pre-morbid uh, level of function. He's an ex-smoker. Previous history of ischemic stroke, secondary to atrial fibrillation, and he's on the medication of Pixaban. He's also type 2 diabetic and hypertensive, and he presents with a headache and difficulty with his speech. On examination, he has a right homonymous hemianopia and subtle dysphasia. Blood pressure is 130 over 90, heart rate's 90, he's alert and oriented. So his uh, CT scan is there, so no surprises, there is an intracerebral hemorrhage, um, but the scan does look a little bit different from the previous chap. So are you able to uh, just describe what this scan shows and I guess the important differences that might guide your thoughts around etiology. Yeah, so this is a, uh, this, this is a low bar hemorrhage in the uh, sort of parietal um, area the le of the left hemisphere. Uh, I think in this, um, in this sort of age group, a low bar hemorrhage raises the possibility of cerebral amyloid angiopathy as, as the etiology. And that's really the sort of this, this uh, dichotomy that we often see, I think by, by far and away that the two commonest causes of ICH in, 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 in older people are uh, the, the deeper ICHs, which we saw in the first case, which is typically hypertensive angiopathy and the low bar hemorrhage, which we see in this patient, which is, which is more 
classic of cerebral amyloid angiopathy. Now, yeah. in this case, this patient also has the uh, the challenge of uh, of atrial fibrillation and apixaban, and so the apixaban is you know potentially contributing to this uh, to this uh, hemorrhage, but also raises a lot of questions about longer term management. Mm. So yeah, dealing with the the initial things to begin with. So in terms of apixaban, is there anything you can do acutely to to reverse apixaban, or do you have to just sit this sit this out? Yeah. So. Um, Apixaban and and uh, the other factor 10A uh, inhibitor, which which we have, which is rivaroxaban, is a little bit challenging at the moment. There there is a um, a reversal agent in the pipeline, which is andexanet alpha, which we we don't unfortunately have uh, in Australia. Uh, so we um, you know when we talk when we see patients like this, we often um, contact the hematology team uh, acutely to to ask for advice on on so-called reversal, but, but really what we're doing is not reversing the apixaban, but, uh, but, but giving, um, you know, pro hemostatic, um, agents such as, uh, you know, FFP and, and, um, and pro thrombinex and things like that. And, uh, and we do know that, that those kind of interventions can normalize the, um, coagulation factors, particularly if they're, if they're still deranged, but, um, but, uh, you know, I think we're, with the question of whether they uh, improve outcome or even whether they actually reverse the activity of apixaban is is still not 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 clear. Mm-hmm. Um, dibigatran, obviously, you know, I, I know this patient's not on dibigatran, but dibigatran is a lot easier, and so we we do have um, idarisizumab or praxbind, which is which is highly effective and uh, you know it should should be used. Okay. Um, so um, I guess I mean the other thing about um, about reversing these uh, or so so called reversal or giving all these these uh, these agents is um, sometimes patients come in with with devastating um, ICH and you know uh, it, it is sometimes a reasonable thing not not to reverse the the uh, or, or not to give um, hemostatic therapy um, if initial management approach is palliative. Yeah. It doesn't look like that that would be the case in this in this patient. No, indeed, he, he was admitted to the stroke unit and actually made a very good recovery and was sent for rehabilitation. Um, and then the decision initially was made not to restart on the apixaban, but he's seen in the clinic um, after a couple of months with the delayed MRI scan. Um, I guess two things here. So what, what's, the, what's the logic for doing a delayed MRI in patients like this? What are the... What are the key things you're looking for? Um, and then we'll come on to the discussion of how do you manage anticoagulation long-term in patients like this? Yeah, so I think the approach of um, a proper thorough imaging approach to, to ICH is a very good, good one because we talked about the, um, the idea that most patients have either hypertensive or amyloid angiopathy, but, but there are times where um, uh, you know, people can have an underlying vascular abnormality or a mass lesion or a tumor or, you know, um, particularly things like melanoma, which, are, which, um, which classically cause, you know, intracerebral hemorrhage. Uh, so, um, you know, we, we have an approach of uh, doing an MRI on essentially all of our patients, apart from those who are palliated early. And, um, we, we, we occasionally will do an MRI early in the hospital if there are high risk features for, you know, tumor or, or other sort of uh, processes. Uh, but, but 
but in the in the majority of people will do it at, at you know two to three months from from onset and the idea behind that is that it allows the hematoma to to uh to dissolve to to an extent that you can actually potentially see any underlying lesion uh underlying lesion there um so this patient still has do you want me to talk about this SWI yeah, yeah, that you've yeah. so I can see a susceptibility weighted sequence and uh um unfortunately there is still a bit of um a bit of blood in the in the sort of hematoma uh bed um it would be important obviously to look at some of the other um, sequences but I suspect this is still going to be a, a cerebral amyloid angiopathy hemorrhage mm -hmm. looking throughout the rest of the the rest of the brain, you would want to be looking for other supporting features of CAA, such as microbleeds or superficial yep. siderosis, uh, which I, I can't particularly the, see at the moment. So it's probably the quality of the uh, the, the image I've done there. But the, um, the so the radiologist did comment on peripherally di uh, distributed microhemorrhages within the superficial okay. white matter, suspicious small mm -hmm. cerebral amyloid angiopathy. Um, so is that that's obviously that sounds supportive of the diagnosis is there is there a certain amount of microbleeds that you would be looking for or is, is it just the presence of them is abnormal in itself well i think you know that's a very good question so um you know the 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 number of microbleeds that you need to fulfill the uh the strict imaging criteria for example the boston or the or the or the um, or the Manchester criteria, you, you don't always see that um, th that sort of threshold or, or number. So uh, I think even if you don't see any microbleeds in a patient like this with a typical low bar hemorrhage in the absence of any other explanation, you would have to think that it's likely CAA. Mm -hmm. but obviously, the more supportive features that you um, that you see, the, the more confident you are about it back to the sort of management discussion so this this gentleman has atrial fibrillation and along with the diabetes and hypertension he would be at increased risk of ischemic stroke um, and i guess it's very difficult balancing that risk against the risk of further bleeding um is this just a very challenging dilemma to be in clinically or are there is there evidence you can draw on for what, what's appropriate to do yeah i think this is a very challenging dilemma um, people often use the, um, you know, the number of microbleeds or the presence of superficial siderosis or, uh, um, you know, um, the number of clinical hemorrhages versus, you know, ischemic events that the patient has had to try to, you know, weigh the risks and benefits of the different approaches. Um, but, you know, I, I think it ends up being a case by case discussion, again, taking factoring in the patient's uh, thoughts um, and how they perceive, you know, the risks um, uh, pre presented to them. Um, my general approach to this is that um, patients with um, CAA are at, are at um, particularly high risk of subsequent bleeding mm -hmm. uh, in the setting of anticoagulation and particularly those with a lot of microbleeds and also those with superficial siderosis. The presence of superficial siderosis is, meant to specifically uh, you know increase the risk of, of subsequent bleeding so i'm often quite reluctant to restart anticoagulation in these patients from time to time i would um you know for a hypertensive hemorrhage if if uh, if if uh, the hypertension was previously poorly controlled and you've now 
controlled it very well. You might consider, you know, anticoagulating someone who's got atrial fibrillation, but um, but for an amyloid um, hemorrhage, I would be uh, extremely uh, reluctant. Yeah. Now we occasionally um, we, we also have the option of a watchman device or left atrial appendage closure device uh, now available and um, and uh, that that is a, a very useful option. Mm. Um, uh, unfortunately, these patients often have other medical comorbidities and 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 things like that, which um, which can make you know procedures like that more complex. But if uh, if the patients had a good recovery from the stroke and are otherwise uh, medically um, okay, then then the cardiologist may may consider a, a watchman device. Yeah, excellent. And just what if you did a susceptibility weighted imaging on this patient? Maybe they hadn't had a, an intracerebral bleed, but it was done for other other reasons. I don't know, headaches or mm. something like this. And you found evidence of micro bleeds, but they hadn't had a prior bleed. Does that does that shift your decision making on anticoagulation? Yeah, I think, I, again, a very good question. And unfortunately, we don't have strong evidence to, to guide us. So again, it goes back to that individual decision. I think if you found, uh, you know, a, a very high number of microbleeds, plus or minus superficial siderosis, that may, that may shift your decision um, from perhaps anticoagulation to rather a, a watchman device. But, you know, I think this is an area where we, we really need... Um, we really need randomised controls, uh, controlled trials, which are which are not going to be very straightforward to to design or to conduct because of the um, the time that's required to, yeah. to 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 determine these outcomes. But uh, you know, again, this this would be a very very much a case by case decision. Yeah, and then finally, before we move on, um, cerebral amyloid angiopathy, I guess, is most commonly known to cause intracerebral bleeds. Um, are there other things that uh, deposition of amyloid in cerebral blood vessels can present with? Yeah, so um, uh, in the last few years, we have um, started to recognize a more inflammatory presentation of cerebral amyloid angiopathy, um, where, uh, and, and there are two main pathological subtypes, one being uh, A-beta or amyloid beta-related angiitis, where there is actually um, uh, amyloid um, uh, beta in the in the vessel wall and and basically uh, vasculitis that's that's centered on the uh, vessel wall uh, and the other is is um, is uh, uh, inflammatory CAA or uh, um, uh, inflammatory cerebral am am amyloid angi angiopathy where there's a, actually a perivasculitis so there's um, there's a sort of amyloid surrounding the vessels but but the majority of inflammation is outside the vessels. And uh, they can be very difficult to distinguish clinically. Um, they, they often present with uh, really sort of fulminant and recurrent hemorrhage uh, and also um, progressive cognitive or, or other focal deficits um, and, and, uh, and an MRI, which really uh, shows typical features of CAA, but also with associated flare hyper, hyper, and flare hyper intensity and swelling. Mm. suggestive of, of uh, inflammation and the two inflammatory conditions are, are sometimes difficult to um to, to distinguish clinically and, and you really need biopsy to yeah. to, to determine them um, the other 
The other area is uh, which people may have heard of is the so-called uh, ARIA or amyloid-related re imaging abnormalities, which we see in the setting of um, of the uh, you know um, experimental anti-amyloid um, antibodies, which are used for for Alzheimer's disease, where removal of amyloid results in um, you know, either hemorrhagic or edematous changes in the brain. And that's probably something that's within the same spectrum. Mm -hmm. And I've heard the term amyloid spells used quite often. Is, is that something we understand the pathophysiology of well, or is this an emerging sort of clinical entity as well? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a very interesting thing. You know, I think people argue about whether amyloid spells is the right uh, term uh, or is a helpful term. Um, uh, you know, and I, I think that the fact that we call them amyloid spells reflects um, how little we understand about the pathophysiology. Um, so amyloid spells are these transient neurological episodes, which are you know TIA-like, but um, but uh, typically involve um, uh, sort of spreading uh, and often positive sensory symptoms. Um, which can which can start in one part of the you know one part of the limb and then and then creep up, uh, and so they sort of they can be misdiagnosed as as TIAs or even focal seizures and uh, and sometimes as also as migraine, mm -hmm. uh, and the likelihood is that there is an element of cortical spreading depression that in in their pathophysiology, and often they are seen in the setting of of uh, either. Um, um, convexity subarachnoid hemorrhage in the setting of amyloid uh, angiopathy or in the setting of, um, of superficial siderosis on MRI. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then finally, moving on to the, the final case. So the final case in many ways is probably the, the more complex presentation, mm -hmm. but um, rather than focusing on the specifics of this case, I was hoping to just discuss in general your approach to patients who present with um, intracerebral hemorrhage who perhaps aren't hypertensive or don't have cerebral amyloid. So looking at the other much rarer causes. So um, as a 24 year old right-handed female, she came into the emergency department as an acute stroke call. So she, um, she according to the partner, she'd um, fallen over the preceding evening. It's not clear whether she'd hit her head. And then she woke during the night to vomit and complained of a headache. And then on waking this morning, um, she developed a, a right-sided weakness and had lost the ability to talk. So examination-wise, her blood pressure is 140 over 80, temperature is 37.5. She's got a dense right hemiparesis affecting her face, arm and leg. And there's evidence of both expressive, sorry, there's evidence of an expressive dysphagia, dysarthria and sensory loss. So a very severe stroke. Um, and you can see her C the CT scan of her head there, which does demonstrate evidence of an intracerebral bleed. Um, now, do you think just looking at the appearances of that scan, is there anything that seems a bit unusual to you um, about this case or, or that radiology appearance? Yeah, I mean, I guess the biggest red flag here is the patient's age, which really has to sort of set off alarms that this is uh, unlikely to be a, uh, you know, a typical hypertensive or amyloid related bleed. And I think you have to really keep an open mind as to, as to a, a more unusual cause and so in, in younger people that arterial imaging excellent arterial imaging is, is 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 incredibly important and also probably early mri and you know quite extensive sort of blood screening investigations would be would be particularly important in, in younger in younger people and i guess things that you you know you need to think about are avms or aneurysms which can present with unusual intra intra um, 
uh, cerebral hemorrhage, uh, you know, bleeding into tumors uh, and, uh, and things like uh, cerebral vasculitis. Mm -hmm. Are there, so a CT angiogram was done and that was reported as normal. Um, do you think in a, in a case like this, that's sufficient to exclude a, a vasculopathy or, or a, a problem with the blood vessels or would you be pushing for more? Um, I th yeah, I think, um, I think it's, I think one, once you start sort of considering the problem, the, the, uh, the issue of, of CNS vasculopathy or in particular vasculitis, you know, it's really important to remember that a normal, um, you know, a normal CTA and even a normal DSA doesn't exclude, mm -hmm. doesn't ex exclude cerebral, cerebral vasculitis. And it might not be a medium vessel vasculitis, for example, it might be a very small vessel vasculitis that's not detectable using those imaging techniques. So um, I think if, if the, if, if that is one of the uh, working diagnoses, then, uh, you know, one really has to keep an open mind and remember that, that, uh, you know, the importance of, um, of really tissue diagnosis in this kind of setting. And sometimes even tissue, you know, be, because of, uh, you know, um, because of sort of sampling error or, or because of, uh, you know, just the, the, the challenges in interpreting some of the histology, sometimes even tissue can be equivocal, but, uh, but, you know, I think it's, um, it's quite risky to make a diagnosis of, of cerebral vasculitis without, without, uh, without tissue. Yeah. And, um, and in this case, um, the patient did have a, a DSA that was very suggestive of um, an underlying vasculopathy, in particular vasculitis, and went on to have a tissue biopsy that confirmed the presence of suspected CNS vasculitis and she was treated with steroids. So I thought that was quite a useful case to highlight what to do when, uh, perhaps when you're encountering a patient without the traditional risk factors for ICH. Um, another, that can, another area that can sometimes be tricky is bleeding due to a venous um, sinus thrombosis. Um, I think that can present a number of dilemmas, not, not least of which is that the treatment for that is with anticoagulation. Do you have any, uh, any advice for, for people who might encounter that? Yeah, I think you're right, um, John. So uh, firstly, you know, the, the sort of um, the red flags that you might be dealing with a, with a intracerebral hemorrhage due to um, sinus thrombosis uh, include things like a, a preceding history of headache. Um, often when you go back and take the history, you know, this is not necessarily uh, such an acute thing, but people may have had headache for weeks uh, prior. Um, uh, presentation with venous sinus thrombosis often uh, seems, to, well, sort of more, more than primary hemorrhage seems to, seems to be associated with seizures at, at onset. So if you ever see someone who presents with a seizure and, uh, and a, particularly a younger person, young female, for example, and, uh, and there's blood in the, uh, in the brain, you know, have think about venous sinus thrombosis. Mm -hmm. The um, the the primary approach to to managing um, venous sinus thrombosis related hemorrhage is uh, um, sort of as as counterintuitive as it may seem is is aggressive anticoagulation, and we we would normally use unfractionated heparin um, uh, because you know you. you theoretically have a little bit more control um, over the, the, uh, the, um, the anticoagulation. Um, uh, and uh, um, one of the key um, complications of venous sinus thrombosis is, is, uh, is mass effect. And that's something that patients really need to be monitored for very carefully. 
Uh, and so uh, it's a combination of anticoagulation and watching the mass effect. And there are patients who need, for example, decompressive surgery, or if they develop, um, you know, raised uh, intracranial pressure or intraocular pressure in particular, require, you know, uh, procedures to, um, to, to, to save their vision sometimes. Yeah. Um, you know, I, it, it, can, it can be an alarming situation to be in, to see blood in the brain and to be anticoagulating, but, um, but really the, the, the pathogenesis or the, the, the process behind venous bleeding uh, is, is completely different to the pathogenesis behind uh, arterial bleeding uh, with primary ICH. And so, although they may have some similarities in appearance, the, the rate of bleeding, the type of sort of tissue damage and edema is happening at a much different rate with the venous, uh, venous bleeding. Excellent. Well, well, thanks very much, Noah, for talking through those three cases. That's really useful. I'll, I'll put you on the spot now and just say, do you have any uh, particular key messages for trainees um, about what you feel are the most important things with regards to ICH management? Yeah. Yeah. I look, I think that the, um, I think that the key thing is uh, as a field trying to um, overcome this uh, therapeutic nihilism that we have for, for ICH. So oftentimes we look at ICH and we, we sort of, there's a sort of almost a, a you know, a, 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 a dejection that comes across people that are, oh, oh dear, there's nothing we can do. Um, you know, and, and unfortunately the, the, the therapeutic options are still quite limited in, in ICH, but, but do remember that there is blood pressure control, there is stroke unit care, there is, you know, specialist nursing and, and allied health interventions that, that can be helpful. And do remember that there is a huge body of work going into trying to, you know, determine whether hemostatic therapy and or um, minimally invasive surgical therapy is, uh, is appropriate. And there's also a good, body of evidence to suggest that uh, that uh, you know um, you know early uh, early palliation or sort of premature palliation or withdrawal of, of therapy you know it, it sort of tends to be a, a self-fulfilling prophecy now obviously you know you, you need to have a you need to consider prognosis very carefully and there are many cases where early palliation is the right thing to do but but I, I suspect that in the next 10 years or so we'll be uh, perhaps being more aggressive uh, in our management of, of ICH uh, uh, once we have better, better therapies. Excellent. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk.